The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Ye are not under the law, but under grace. Now this great text, building on the foundation truth of the previous paragraphs, presents the believer in his new position. Joined to Christ, he is in life, not death. Joined to Christ, he is not under law, but under grace. The man who is trusting Christ is seen by God to be in Christ. The amazing truth is set forth again and again throughout the epistles. God sees us even as he sees Christ. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, The Believer's Position. Most stores and shops have some sort of return policy. If you buy something that does not meet your expectations, you can bring it back to the store for a full refund. But God has no return policy regarding salvation. He does not send us back to the dominion of sin, death, and Satan if we fail to live up to His expectations. How can a firm grasp of the ramifications of your position in Christ revolutionize your spiritual life? Let's find out as today Dr. Barnhouse turns to Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. Here once again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, The Believer's Position. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We pray thee that thou shalt speak to each listening heart and use the word that is spoken to reach the center of need. If there be those listening who have not been born again, we ask thee to bring them conviction of sin, that they may come to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus as personal Savior. And in all that do know thee, wilt thou work thy work of blessing, that there may be spiritual growth in the knowledge of thy truth. We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today is in the sixth chapter of Romans and the verse 14. Ye are not under the law, but under grace. The first lesson that we can draw from this great fact is that there is no such thing as probation for a believer in Christ. We are never accepted by God conditionally. Oh, I know that there are churches which have classes for young converts and keep them on probation for a period of time. But for such procedure, there is no authorization whatsoever in the word of God. There's a striking example of this fact in Paul's treatment of the Philippian jailer. The story is found in the 16th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Paul and Silas had been put in prison in Philippi. 
If we're to understand what follows, we must realize the nature of a prison in the ancient world. No citizen was ever put in prison in Greece or Rome in his home community. The penalties for crimes were severe, death, ostracism, exile, confiscation of property, and heavy fines. But there were no public prisons as we would have prisons today. If a man was convicted of murder, he was turned over to the family of the victim who did with him what they pleased. They could kill him in any manner they desired, or they could take his property and let him go into banishment. There were prisons maintained by private individuals under officials where debtors could be placed and where strangers could be detained until their cases should be decided. It was in a place like this that Paul and Silas were placed. The jailer was undoubtedly a very evil man. Socrates speaks of jailers as tyrants who held all prisoners as their slaves. When the earthquake awakened the keeper of the prison, and when he saw that the doors of the prison were opened, he judged that the prisoners had escaped. Knowing that the law would demand of him the penalties that had been judged against the prisoners, he took his sword and was about to commit suicide. And then it was that Paul cried out, Do thyself no harm, we are all here. The astonished jailer called for a light, and rushing into the prison, came trembling before the disciples and fell down before them. The Spirit of God had already begun to work in his heart. He knew that he was in the presence of something supernatural. The chains were off all the prisoners. They had not fled when they had the opportunity of fleeing. When he held his sword to his body in order to kill himself, he had been suddenly arrested by the voice of Paul, though the midnight darkness was around him, and the voice came calling him to desist. It was in these circumstances that he asked his famous question that needs to be asked by every man. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the Holy Spirit of God gave him the equally famous answer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And straightway that very day he was baptized and received into the church. There was no probation. Now if this happened today, there are some religious leaders who would not have accepted him. Or if they had, they would have received him with great suspicion. They would have asked him to enter a period of probation. They would have watched him narrowly to see if his conduct conformed to the standards which they had set up, even though such standards could not be justified by the word of God. Believe it or not, I know personally fine Christians who are above all reproach and who've had their very salvation questioned by self-appointed, self-righteous judges because these people happen to have been divorced even though they were totally innocent of wrong, or have had their salvation questioned because they were associated with the motion picture industry. Now such judgment is both unbiblical, uncharitable, and inexcusable. It rises out of the common error of confusing sanctification with justification and demanding evidence of the fruit of sanctification before the fact of justification is admitted. This is most wrong. I plead with all Christians who would be biblically strong that they study earnestly the difference between justification and sanctification and that they come to the full realization that their standing before God in justification is an eternal, unchangeable fact and that out of it will stem every desire for holiness and the growth that our Lord has definitely promised to all who are His since he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion according to his word. Now the second lesson we can draw from our perfect standing under justification 
being under grace and not under law is that the past life of every born-again man has ceased to exist so far as God is concerned. It's difficult at times for us to realize this, as we have memories that are a part of our whole imperfect personalities. But God remembers what the world forgets, and God forgets what the world remembers. We are so constituted that we can easily remember the things that are bad. We look at a man who's been saved, and we wonder if he is still bound by the things that once enthralled him. Years ago, I read the story of an incident which took place in Scotland, and which illustrates this. There was a man of simple life who earned his living as a fisherman. Unfortunately, he was bound by strong drink, and on two frequent occasions he took the money from his catch and spent it on liquor, while his wife and children suffered miserably. They lived in a little hovel off at the end of the fishing village, and there, out of sight of most of the village, they eked out their penurious existence in extreme poverty. But suddenly there came a great change. Old John, as he was called, came to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as his own personal Savior. There was an immediate transformation. He brought his full money home and gave it to his astonished wife. He worked more steadily, and soon there was more money than they had seen in years. There were new clothes and new shoes for the children and new dresses for the mother. There was food on the table, coal for the fire, and all was going very well. After a few weeks of this, his wife said to him one day, John, if you're going to keep on like this, we should begin to think of moving out of this miserable place and taking a better house. Right, said John. I shall go and see the landlord about a new house at once. He made his way through the town to the landlord and asked to rent a good house which was available. The landlord said, I'd never rent a good house to you. Why do you say that? asked John. You don't know me at all, and I'm quite sure that I'm able to pay the rent and that I would be a model tenant for you. Why, of course I know you, said the landlord. You're old drunken John the fisherman. I knew you were quite mistaken, said John quietly. You've never seen me before. Old John is dead, and I am new John, a new creature in Christ Jesus. And he opened his purse and poured out a good handful of gold coins on the table before the eyes of the astonished landlord. Now, whether or not the man was convinced by the testimony of New John, I do not know. But he was convinced by the sight of the gold coins, and New John was soon living in a new house. I suppose that there were people who lived in that village who still remembered, even after years and years of calm sobriety, that New John had once been Old John. The world has a tenacious memory for past sins, especially in other people, and comforts itself often by bolstering its own courage against the gospel in seeking to remember that the justified ones were not always what they should have been, and that their present life does not always show in sanctification what they have claimed in justification. But again, I remind you that the memory of man and the memory of God are quite different, the one from the other. I have recently gone through the Word of God, studying all that is to be found about the memory of God. A careful study of the words remember and forget will demonstrate the wonder, the matchless wonder of the grace of God as revealed in the things he says that he forgets and the things which he says that he remembers. When the men who he had chosen out of the darkness of their sinful past revealed the reality of their Adamic natures, Jesus did not cast them off because of the outbreak of their sinfulness? God did not cast off his people because they revealed what they were, the lying of an Abraham, 
the murderous wrath of a Moses, or his murmuring, complaining disbelief of the promises. These did not cause God to cast off these men. Even if he had, it would have been impossible for him to have replaced them with others who would not have repeated their sins. For all men are digged from the same hole of the pit. All are cut from the same cloth. But we read of these men again and again that God remembered his covenant which he had made with them. We read it of Noah in Genesis 9. We read it of Abraham in Exodus and several other passages. We read it of Abraham's descendants. And time and again, we read it of all the children of Israel. Listen also to these great promises concerning the memory of God. We read in Isaiah, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. And then in Jeremiah, they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know him, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And then in the book of Hebrews we read, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And again, this is my covenant, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, not only does God say that he will never remember our sins, but he also says that he never forgets what we are in ourselves. He remembers what he made us out of. Do you think for a moment that the Lord was under any illusions as to the nature of the sinful dust which he had erected into man? He speaks of his memory of this fact in words that are comforting indeed. For we read in Psalm 78, He, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath, for he remembered that they were but flesh a wind that passeth away and cometh not again. While in another psalm we read, He knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. But though the Lord would never remember the sins of his people, he does remember what he himself is. And he has reminded us of this, for we read in the psalms, He hath remembered his mercy and his truth. And again, he remembered his holy promise. And Though this quotation is not relevant to the point we are making, if you want to probe further into that wonderful memory of our Lord, who forgets all the bad in the believers of his own covenant and remembers always his own grace, look at the promise which states that he is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Now we see then he remembers nothing that's bad and remembers that all that's good. Now in view of all this, the man who is saved can face the present and the future with the certain knowledge that his past has been dealt with and that it has been dealt with by God himself and that this dealing has been so effective that the thought of the past will never, never again rise to confront the man, neither in time nor in eternity. I once met a young man who was in a certain phase of Christian work. He was living in a sense of frustration and with a great inferiority complex because of the fact that he had been born of a drunken father and from a family that was socially very low. While he had been saved and come into fine Christian circles and had married the daughter of an outstanding minister, but he was on the point of wrecking his life because he could not forget his past. I told the young man that he was sinning even to think of his past. What right have we to remember for a moment that which God says he himself has forgotten? 
Your old Adamic nature, if you believe in Jesus Christ, simply does not exist so far as God is concerned. Your old man died at the cross of Jesus Christ, and when Christ rose from the dead, he became our life, and we have no other. Now, the third lesson that we must draw from our standing before God in justification, one, that there is no probation, two, that our past is gone forever, and three, that what God has done is eternally done, and that not even he himself can undo it. It is absolutely incomprehensible to me that anyone could hold that it would be possible for a true Christian to fall away and be lost. I can conceive of no more horrible caricature of a God than one who would move from heaven to save wretched sons of Adam, would go to the extent of giving his life to redeem them, and then would trust the accomplishment of their salvation to their own feeble efforts. Anyone who holds such an idea has a terribly low view of the love of God and an equally low view of the sinfulness of sin. Why, if we were left to ourselves, we could not remain in holiness that could satisfy the God of all holiness. We could not thus remain for even the space of one breath. Our only hope is that we are under grace and that we are maintained in the resurrection life of Christ moment by moment and are seen through Christ by the Father and are having our condition daily brought under his control in order to be made more and more like our perfect position in Christ. Now, it's very important to remember that the Lord knew all of the problems of our nature and being before he ever moved to redeem us. This thought must be repeated and understood. God did not proceed on an adventure in salvation without knowing what was going to happen. God was not like a man who starts to build a house without having the money to pay for it. God had no illusions about the character of our Adamic natures. He knoweth our frame and remembereth that we're dust. He knew it before he touched us and he still knows it. It is on the grounds of what he is in himself that his grace can never be withdrawn when once it has been communicated to us. We have been born again and we cannot be unborn. Where God has given eternal life, he himself could not withdraw it and replace it with eternal death. For if ever our eternal life should be taken from us, it would not have been eternal in the first place, and what would replace it would certainly be eternal death. Now, another lesson which we can learn from our standing before God in justification is that failure on our part may lead to chastening, but it cannot lead to death. The Holy Spirit teaches this wonderful truth in the great second chapter of the second epistle to Timothy. You remember that section where a believer is described as a son, a teacher, a soldier, a wrestler, a vineyard keeper, a workman, and a potter's vessel. And among the lessons spread through this passage describing our position in these various relationships is the following. In verse 12 and 13 of 2 Timothy 2, the saying is sure, if we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now this truth is set forth in much detail in the first epistle of the Corinthians. There, in that church which had so recently been brought out of paganism, there was a believer who had brought into his Christian life his whole personality with its evil trends. 
and he was letting it dominate him. He was what the Spirit calls a carnal believer. Now, if you look closely at the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, you note that first of all, the church is described in magnificent detail as though God were giving you an inventory of all the blessings that were laid up for the believer in Christ. Then immediately following this, it moves to describe the condition of the believers, and quite different it is. The contrast is very sharp if you read it. He speaks of these men, faithful in Christ Jesus, coming behind in no gift, complete in Christ. And then suddenly he says, stop your fighting. The great description was their position. The exhortation concerned their condition. Now, there in that church at Corinth, which had so recently been brought out of paganism, there was a believer who had brought, I say, who had brought into his Christian life the whole personality with its evil trends, and he was letting it dominating. He was what the Spirit called the carnal believer. Paul wrote with great vigor against the church's easy tolerance of his flagrant sin. They were ordered to pray for his death. We know from a comparison in the second epistle to the church that he immediately repented and that the church was instructed to surround him with love lest he be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow because of the heavy discipline which had been pronounced against him by the church. But it was stated in the first judgment against him that if he was delivered by the church for spiritual judgment and his body should suffer death, that his spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord. Even more striking is the passage in the same epistle that speaks of those who have approached the communion table in an unworthy manner. This means, as we know from a comparison with other scriptures, that they had come to the Lord's table professing to have no unconfessed, unforsaken sin, while in reality they were caressing some course of action that was out of the Lord's will and which they knew to be so. The choice is set before them. If they would judge themselves by confessing and forsaking their sin, they would not go through the chastening which the Lord would have to give them otherwise. But if they did not yield themselves to him, they would go through chastening from the Lord. He would have to bring them this chastening. And the final phrase of the statement expressly states that the reason for this chastening from the Lord is in order that the believer out of the will of the Lord should not be condemned with the world. You see how strong it is? It's not that he would be condemned with the world, even though he was out of the will of God. God would chasten him if he did not submit. And if he did submit, why, of course, then the Lord would take him on in grace. But the dilemma that stands before the sinning believer is not heaven or hell, but it's heaven with a reward or heaven without a reward. It's to be there before God, saved yet so as by fire. It's to be before God with all works burned away, having lost one's crown. Now, the situation may be compared to that of a man who's guilty of wrongdoing before human law, but who's being brought to trial under one set of the law's provisions, which cannot carry a sentence that is beyond a certain limit. We know it in our day-by-day -day contact with the law. A man convicted of manslaughter cannot be sentenced for murder. A man convicted of petty larceny cannot be sentenced for grand larceny, and so on. A believer in the Lord Jesus Christ can be brought to judgment that will chasten him here and remove his crown forever, but which cannot take him to the lake of fire to suffer separation from the God who loved him, redeemed him, accepted him in Christ, counted him as justified, 
and put down to his account the very righteousness of God in the gifts of eternal life. But he can never be brought to the judgment for sinners. He is brought to the judgment for the believers. We are not under the law. We are under grace. And all of this is calculated to refine us, to purify us, to instruct us, to edify us, to develop us in order that we might know the truth that is involved in our being joined to Christ so that we're to be vessels of honor fit for the Lord's use, that we're to have Christ formed in us so that we shall be transformed into his image and his likeness. For the purpose of grace is that we may be holy and that we may be conformed to the image of God's dear Son. And we pray thee, our Lord and our God, that thou shalt bless the truth to us in this hour, and that thou shalt use it to thine honor and glory. If there be those who listen who have not been born again, we ask thee that thou wilt give them restlessness until they rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. But upon all thy redeemed own, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide, and a new sense of our marvelous position in Christ. And unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power, now until our Lord come again and forever. Amen. The moment you trusted in Jesus for salvation, God placed you in Christ and continues to see you as united with Him. Our position in Christ results in spiritual peace and confidence with God. We hope you've benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, The Believer's Position. Now you can listen to additional teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at AllianceNet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message is entitled, The Believer's Position, or simply request message number R6-33. We'd also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, More Names of God. What's in a name, wrote Shakespeare? When you study the names of God, you will discover a wealth of riches in the knowledge of Him. In this free booklet, Dr. Barnhouse focuses on five of the nearly 400 names of God in Scripture, showing how each name reveals glorious aspects of the Lord's character and attributes. Understanding the names of God will help you know Him better. Ask for your free copy of More Names of God when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from the broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at AllianceNet.org. 
Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.